Well, good morning, everybody. This morning, we are, we're starting a brand new series uh, in Romans chapter 8. And for the next six weeks, we're going to unpack all of Romans 8. And um, if you've been around our church for a long time, we kind of try to go back and forth. We do some topical things. Like we think, here's some really interesting things that we think uh, you should know or some situations that are going on in the world that we want to tackle. And then we also want to have series where we just come to this Word. And we unpack Scripture, and we kind of let the Word of God direct us in where our sermons go. And, um, and kind of the way we should be doing in our devotional life as well. The reason why we come uh, in our devotional life and we read through Scripture is because it's the Word of God, the unchanging Word of God that God uses to help frame who He is, frame what the spiritual life is, frame the values, and then that's something that we then have to wrestle with. If we don't do it that way, then God's just an invisible God. We pick our three favorite verses, and away we go. And so for six weeks, we're going to just get after Romans chapter 8. And there's some really big concepts and really complex things, and um, we're going to try our best to unpack them. So if you have your Bible, why don't you open up to Romans chapter 8, and uh, we're going to go digging in. It's an in-depth look at the love of God. And what's incredible about Romans 8, Romans 8 is kind of the centerpiece of the book of Romans, and it's all about who God is, what God has done for us, and is motivated by His love, and really quickly is going to transition into what God longs for us um, as His people, as His dearly beloved children. Now, um, if, you've, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 7, um, is, there's a lot there. And the very first word in Romans chapter 8 is, therefore. And, um, and so how in the world, in three minutes, let alone in one sermon, how do we get all of Romans uh, 1 through 7 um, unpack it, which we can't. So this is the assumption. Most of us in the church who've been around the church, um, we get the basic argument of Romans 1 through 7, which is this, that we are sinful people, that God is holy, that God is perfect, that God is pure. We are sinful and we're rebellious. And because we're sinful and rebellious, there's this break between us and God, right? Us, this rebellious, sinful people um, against this holy and righteous God. God longs to be in relationship with us. And so how in the world is God going to bridge that gap? And Romans 1 through 7 just simply makes a really compelling argument of we're sinful people and what Jesus has done and begun to do in that story. And I think it's great. And I've been around the church a long time and I think, gosh, that's so great. I love being a sinful person. I love embracing that and uh, being a Gen Xer, even more so being broken, speaking my love language. But what I think is incredible is that that's, a lot of times I think we think, oh, that's just what Christians think. That's just what um, the Western world thinks. But the reality is, is this idea that we are sinful people, that we have a problem with God is actually a human thing. I remember back over 20 years ago when I was in college, I took a Chicano studies class and we studied the Aztec people. And I was so fascinated by the Aztec people because they were a civilization that was totally separate from Western civilization. You know, with the Romans and the Byzantines and Marco Polo and going into China, like there was all, all over Europe and Asia and the Middle East, all these cultures jumbled together. They all mixed and matched, and they shared stories, and they shared traditions. And, um, and, and through that, certain stories kind of rose to the top. But the Aztecs were totally different. The Aztecs were separated by huge um, distances of water. And what's interesting is in the Aztec people, there's still some fundamental things about who they are and about how they saw the world, which was just like how people in the West saw the world. The people in the West, and in every civilization in the West, um, and in Asia, and in Asia Minor, every civilization had this idea of sacrifice. They knew that there was a problem between them and God and them and others, and the way that you solve that problem was through sacrifice, usually through a, uh, animal sacrifice. 
But if there was a really big problem, if there was a really big issue between you and God, or the gods were really mad at you, well, then you had to step it up and do human sacrifice. And what's crazy is human sacrifice was normal in the ancient world in almost every civilization, in Tibet, in China, different parts of Africa, um, the Druids. And, um, and then here we are in the Aztecs. And the Aztecs were a civilization removed from all of them, and they too practiced sacrifice. And not just sacrifice, they were masters at human sacrifice. They had a 52-year cycle where they would go through it every year. They would, they would pick a certain uh, thing that they would want to please God with, and they would sacrifice humans about. And then another year, another year. And at the end of 52 years, it would be like the, 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 the biggest year ever. And uh, the conquistadors actually were there for one of those cycles where they sacrificed over 80,000 people in four days. It was dramatic and incredible. And the reason why they did that, it was for this Aztec word called netahali. Well, I don't know if that's how it's pronounced, but that's what Wikipedia said. And netahali is this idea that there's this debt that needs to be paid. And these ancient people, far removed from all of Western civilization, knew in the core of their being that there was a problem between them and God. And somehow this problem had to be appeased through sacrifice. And it just blows my mind that that is the case, that we think, oh, that's just Christian thing or that's the Western thing. But almost all religious people all over the world recognize there's a problem between us and God and sacrifice is the way forward. Now, there's a, a, a Swiss psychiatrist named Carl Jung, and he was uh, really big in the turn of the century. He was a student of Freud, and, uh, and he's an atheist. And if he's not an atheist, he's for sure agnostic. He does not, he's not a Christ follower in the slightest. But he had this observation about humans. Unfortunately, there can be no doubt that man is, on the whole, less good than he imagines himself or wants to be. That's such an awesome and powerful and timely statement, I think, because we all think of ourselves as good people. We're all noble people. And if we're not good people, it's because the world around us has somehow wronged us. But Carl Jung, who is is the Swiss psychiatrist who spent his entire lifetime studying humans and studying our psyche, he said, no, we're actually less good than we actually imagined. He says, everyone carries a shadow. And the less it is embodied in the individual's conscious life, the blacker and denser it is. I love that. What a call for humans to be reflective people. Whether you're a Christ follower, whether you're an Aztec person, or you're an agnostic atheist like Carl Jung, there's this thing about all human beings that we at the core of our being are broken. There's this shadow side. Every single one of us knows that we are not living out the way that we should be living. We all have these incredible ideals and we cannot meet it. We've all been deeply wronged by people around us. And we've been so wrong that it's actually changed the trajectory of our lives and changed the trajectory of how we interact and relate to people. And that is the human experience all the way across the board. And Romans 1 through 7 says that in a very Christianese way. And I just thought it's kind of fun to realize that it's not just a Christian thing, but it is a human thing. And every human being in every civilization has tried to figure out what do we do with that? How do we make ourselves right? This sinful, broken, shadowy person, how do we make that person walk into the light and be whole and healthy people? And the Christian story is really the the solution. It's the Christian solution, but I think it is the solution. And that solution is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to start at Romans chapter 8, which is right where uh, the solution comes into play. So if you have your Bible, let's look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And it says this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
That's the beginning of the Christian message. The beginning of the Christian message isn't you're an awful person, you're a dirtball, and you're going to go to hell because God hates you. That is not how it is. The beginning of the Christian message is that therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Because the deal is that God is motivated by love. God longs to be in relationship with his people. He longed from the creation of the world to create humans, to have a unique way in which humans were to interact with each other and to interact with him. And that was his intention. And because of sin and rebellion, we've ended up breaking everything ever since. And the way we break things, there's actually a cost to that. But the Christian story, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus comes to free us from that penalty, from that death, and now we find that there's actual freedom. Now, some of you are Awana's people. Some of you have been Bible scholars forever and ever. I'm not a good Bible memorizer, but I do have one verse that I've memorized, and maybe you have too. It's John 3.16. Have you heard that verse? It used to be very popular. Less and less people know. But let's see if we together we can try to say John 3.16. Go all the way back to your deep Christian roots. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's incredible. That's like the verse. That's the verse in the whole Bible, because that verse kind of sums up how we understand the gospel, the whole story of the gospel. And that picture is the picture that's lived out through Romans 8, which is lived out through the whole story of the gospel. And in that verse, for God so loved the world, everything that God has done in Jesus is motivated by his deep love for his people. It isn't because he couldn't find another way. It isn't motivated out of wrath. It isn't motivated out of irritation or frustration. It's motivated out of his deep love for his people. He loves us. He wants to be with us. And what's so funny is we just think, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world. But he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish. That's where we start. Our starting point is that we're perishing people. Our sin and our brokenness has put us on this trajectory of being perished people, of being condemned people. But the good news of Jesus is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if we can get our head around that, that we are forgiven people and there's no condemnation, then the entire trajectory of our life changes. Let's go on to verse 2. It says this, Because through Christ Jesus, sorry, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's kind of a lot there. The spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So we have two laws here. Like, so the question is, what law are we talking about? Are we talking about the law um, that leads to sin and death? Or are we talking about to the law of the spirit that leads to life? And the law, the answer is yes, in some sense. The word law is uh, translated from the Greek word nomos. Nomos means law. Isn't that crazy how that works? Well, nomos is the Greek word that was used in the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Bible. So they took the, he- I mean, the, the Old Testament, took the, the Hebrew Bible, they translated it into Greek, and whenever they came across the word law, whenever they came across the word Torah, they, they used the word nomos. So nomos means Torah, which means the law. So the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that's the law, that's Torah. And does that law, is that the law that leads to death? Or is that the law that leads to life? And that really is the question. And what's incredible is God longs to be in relationship with us. 
But a lot of times we have the posture of rebellious punk teenage kids. Not that our teenagers are punks, but you remember when you were a punk. And we have this idea that God is this angry dad who wants to just crush our souls and dash our dreams. And so now we have two responses in that. We can either fight or we can either flight. And the prodigal son story is the exact picture of that, right? The prodigal son, he said, forget the rules, I'm out. And he, fl- and he takes off. Or the, the older son, um, he, you know, he doesn't want to upset his dad, so he just kind of internalizes it all, and he just you know, says, oh, poor me, the whole time. And what's interesting is humans, and especially in the Jewish tradition, they came up with two ways in which to handle the law. So the law that leads to death is actually the 613 laws. Throughout um, the five books of the Torah, there's 613 laws that you are to follow. And most rebellious punk teenagers go, those laws suck. I hate the law. I hate the rules. And we're out. And we just think that's so awful because our dad's so angry. Or the Pharisees, what they did is they said, you know what? Those are 613 laws. That's a lot. And we don't want to make dad angry. So we're going to add even more laws. And so they added even more laws to put like this barrier out here. So at least if you break one of these laws, you didn't break the big law and God won't be mad at you. And so they added even more. But both those laws that legalistic form of faith actually leads to death. And when you read the story of Torah, what you realize is most of the story is actually a narrative. It's a story of God interacting with his people. And what happened is God showed up and he longed to be in relationship with his people. He makes this covenant with Abraham. Abraham was considered righteous because of his faith, not because he followed any of the laws. And then later on, Moses, Moses goes to the uh, Mount Sinai, gets 10 commandments, comes down, and then finds out that they couldn't even follow those rules. And then they added more rules. And then after those rules, there's more narrative, and then they broke those rules. So then there's even more rules. And then there's some more narrative, and so on, and so on, and so on. And it's really simply, think of it this way. If you're a parent of a teenager, and you're, you say, come home after school, that's your rule. Because the intention is, for the parent, due to most teenagers' disbelief, is that parents long to be in a relationship with their kids. They long to be close to their kids. They long to be with, share their life, to know what's going on with them, and to empower them and send them off into the big, bad world. That's like most parents' dream. And so they say, hey, come home after school, because that's the intention. But what does the kid do? Well, they, they don't come home right after school. They come home and they stop at a store. They go to their friend's house. And all of a sudden they come home at seven. So all of a sudden the rule, which is come home after school, has to be clarified. Okay, don't come home right after school. I mean, what I mean is come home by four. Be home by four. So you can't wander around till seven. So now they come home at four. But then you realize, oh, they started wandering around. They go in the liquor store and stuff. Okay, don't go to the liquor store. Okay, fine. So they don't go to the liquor store. Now they go to the dirtball friend's house. Don't go to the dirtball friend's house. And all of a sudden, this intention of just come home, right? As a parent, you're having to add more and more and more rules. And what's crazy about rebellion is the more and more rules causes your brain just to freak out. And almost every parent I know who's had a 16, 17, and 18-year-old, the more rules that happen, the kids just freak out and they run like crazy and it causes death and destruction between the relationship. But that's not God's heart. God's heart is to be in relationship with us. Our heart, because we're broken, is to be sinful and rebellion. And so what God longs is saying, listen, there is this law that leads to death, and there's this law that leads to life. And because there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the debt, all the things that we've broken in our rebellion, think of all the ways that you have hurt people, all the ways that you have crushed people, And if you're a little more selfish like me, then you maybe start with all the ways that people have wronged you and crushed you. Like all of that hurt and all that pain, there has to be some sort of payment. There has to be some sort of justice. There has to be something to cover that. And Jesus becomes the way to free us from that. 
So now, because of Jesus, there's no condemnation. The, the things that we broke when we were living under the law, we're now free to live under the Spirit. All right, let's go on. In verse chapter, eight, chapter 8, verse 3, it says this, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be the sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh. It's so weird how human nature works because the law was designed to clarify how to be in good relationship with God. And the more laws were, the more rebellion takes root. And we just know that in our own lives. When we start being in relationship with someone, we think of our parents, the more the law came down, it just like the law takes root. So we think as parents, the laws are actually going to help protect our kids. And instead, it just, instead just causes more rebellion. How to fix that? That I don't know. You'll make a million dollars if you can solve that problem. But spiritually, that problem is solved through Jesus Christ. And it said that God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Now, kind of common uh, language in Jesus' people land is that Jesus died for our sins. And the bummer is it's such a cliche that most of the time we go, Jesus died for our sins, and we kind of snooze and forget about it. But the reality is Jesus' death on the cross was a universe-changing, life-changing, heaven-and-hell-changing event that is so rich, that is so complex, that there are shelves and libraries at seminaries full of just what in the world it means that Jesus died for our sins. There's a fancy Christian word called atonement, and atonement is basically the theological word that talks about what happened when Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus died, something happened, and it's called the atonement. But it's really way more complex than any of us can get our head around. And depending on your theological tradition, there's kind of different um, theories of atonement that each tradition kind of latches onto. But those are simply just, just like a, when light goes through a prism, it refracts, and then you get to see kind of how complex the light is. The same way atonement is this really complex word. And then when you look at it, there's these different theories. So there's like the example theory. There's the, the ransom theory. There's this really fancy one called Christus Victus. Um, which is really uh, fancy. There's the healing uh, theory and the, the penal substitutionary atonement theory. And there's like a dozen more. Like when I looked it up, I mean, there's like a dozen different theories. But the one that Paul talks about in Romans 8 that I want to clarify with you and talk a little bit about is about penal substitutionary atonement. But I didn't want to just talk about it in the sense that this is the only one. I think it's helpful to know that there's a, all sorts of complexity in that. But in this chapter, in chapter 8, Paul talks about that Jesus became a sin offering. And the penal substitution of atonement, what that means is penal means there is a punishment. Earlier in Romans, Paul makes the case that for the wages of sin is death. What that means is you have a job, and when you have a job, you work, and because you work, you get paid a certain amount. Right? There's a wage for what you do. There's a result for what you did. And in the Christian world, and what, what, God, what Paul was saying through Romans, was that the wages of sin is death. You're this sinful, rebellious person. You do these things in rebellion towards God, and the actual consequence, the penalty for that, is death. It's death here on earth. You just see that in the way that when you live rebelliously with people, the way that it causes death in relationship. But there's also death between you and God. That is the penalty. So that penalty has to be paid. And then in the atonement, what Christians believe is that Jesus paid that price, that Jesus' death paid the price for our death. So we deserve death because of our sin. Jesus dies in our place. That's the substitution. Instead of us being responsible for the consequences of our sin, Jesus takes on all of the punishment of sin, puts that on himself, and then we now are free from that. 
So Jesus was righteous and took on our sin. We were sinful, and then we now get to take on Jesus's righteousness. And because of this, because of this theory of atonement, because of what Jesus did on the cross, all of our sin is wiped away for all time. The sin you did yesterday, the sin you did today, the sin you're going to do tomorrow, all of it once and for all has been taken care of. And because of that, we live in a culture that doesn't sacrifice animals anymore. We don't sacrifice. In fact, we, we, we're so far from sacrifice that we've gone full circle and now think we're good people and don't even think our, what, how we sin actually impacts other people. But we need to recognize that our sin causes real death and destruction. From a Christian perspective, our sin causes real separation. But instead of being fearful for that, instead of hiding from that, instead of pretending to be such good, noble people all the time, there's this freedom to recognize, oh, I am a sinful, broken person. I have, I have hurt and wronged people. And there's a way for forgiveness. I don't know if you've ever been in a fight with someone who you really love. Um, there's this scary moment that you're scared. What if I tell them, what if, what if I ask for forgiveness and they don't give it to me? And it's really scary. And you think about it, we often don't ask for forgiveness for people. We just kind of forget about it and we hope to get through it. But I think a lot of times we don't ask for forgiveness because we're scared. What if they don't offer it to us? And then if we prove, to, we prove it's true that our relationship is actually ruined. So we don't even go there. But if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that you would be forgiven every single time that you ask forgiveness, you have this opportunity for intimacy. And at the end of the day, Romans 8, what that's about is about moving from this legalistic view where we live in fear of God, fear of each other, and one towards a life in the Spirit where we actually get to be whole people and live fully into the, into the life that God has for us. So we're going to wrap this up in Romans chapter 8, verse 4. It says this, that in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met with us, so the atonement, right? Jesus dying for sin did that in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that really is what the rest of Romans 8 is going to be about. The rest of the series is going to be about. It's really what the rest of the Christian life is all about. Once we recognize our sinfulness, once we recognize what Jesus did on the cross, then the whole rest of the Christian experience is about learning how to live a life in the Spirit, learning how to be wholehearted people, being all that God made us to be, to be in relationship with people in the depth of intimacy, the way that God longed for us to be. And so now we're invited into this new life. And this new life in the Spirit is one where the Holy Spirit actually transforms our hearts. We have this, this picture of the broken glass that can't be put back together, but in a supernatural way, the, the power of the Holy Spirit actually puts that broken piece of glass back together. The prophet Jeremiah was looking forward to this day um, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came. He said, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. For after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. For that ultimately is the intention of God. That's the intention of Torah. That's the intention of the atonement. That's the intention that gets spelled out in Romans chapter 8. That at the end of the day, God's law will be written on our hearts It'll be written in our heads. And this idea that God, he will be our God and we will be his people. And that's how God longs for the story to be. Now, I've said this before, but I love love. I love it. I think it's so cool. I'm not very romantic and my wife's kind of bummed about that, but I love the idea of love. And uh, the new season of The Bachelor started and I'm all excited about that. And, and I think part of that is just because there's something that's incredible. It's, it's something supernatural. There's a sacrament to this idea when people fall in love. 
And especially on their wedding day, when two people stand and look across from each other and they make this covenant to have and to hold through sickness, through health. They long to be with each other. And when they, when they make those commitments to each other, they're not just like blowing each other off. Like they genuinely believe it. It's like the one moment in their whole marriage where they genuinely believe it. They go, yes, I love you. I want to be with you. No matter what happens from this day forward, I am in it with you. And they say that for everybody. And there's this moment, it's like in a movie, you're like, yes. And no, of course, anyone who's been in an intimate relationship with someone for a long time knows it's not always like that. But that's the intention. And what's incredible, at our best intention, when we are so in love with somebody, especially when we're so in love with our spouse, we don't go, oh, those are the rules. That's like if you approach your relationship with, oh, what are the rules of this relationship? It's not going to go well for you. But if you approach your relationship and think, how can I love this person? How can I serve this person? How can I be there and care for them the way in which they need and want to be cared for? All of a sudden, when you lean in and you love that person selflessly, that person's heart is restored right back towards you. And then they love you and their hearts move towards you. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And you have this awesome love spiral, which is so great, which is why I love love. But just as easily, easily we, right, resentment and bitterness can go in. We can kind of guard our hearts and we can think those are the rules and you're so naggy and whatever the, your issues are. And we, we pull back. And just where there once was this intimacy that was so great and so beautiful, it then spirals out. Well, I just want to encourage us when we think about a relationship with God, the picture throughout Scripture is often of a, of a father and a child, but there's also one of this marriage picture where God longs. He stands at the altar and he extends his hands out and he says, I covenant with you to have and to hold, to be intimate with you, to share life with you through thick and thin, through sickness and health. That is God's heart for his people. And we have the opportunity to come back to God to come back and to recognize our sinful and rebellious ways that have only caused death and destruction between God and towards ourselves, to once again ask God to forgive us, to cleanse us from our sin, to cleanse us from our unrighteousness, all the things that happened on the cross, to ask God for forgiveness, which he gladly extends, to sit back and to be in relationship with him again. And so I would just like to encourage you as we begin this new year, as we begin a whole new series through Romans 8, which basically for the next five weeks gets to unpack what this life in the Spirit looks like, what this intimate relationship with God looks like, where we get to come back to his, our first love. And one of the ways that we're going to celebrate that is through celebration of communion. And communion is a, is a, is a sacrament of the church. It's something that we do once a month in our tradition. But it's a, it's a constant reminder that the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus change everything. We're no longer lost we're no longer estranged. We're invited to be in table fellowship with God, to be in table fellowship with each other. And communion is the opportunity, is the symbol, is the sacrament where we say and remind ourselves of the truth that Jesus longs to be with us, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because his body was broken and his blood was shed for us.